4: Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. I wanted to just share with you my thoughts on what looks like is going to be coming, though it could take several weeks because Bob Barr is in the middle of the process excuse me, Bill Barr. I keep thinking of my old congressman from, from Atlanta, Bob Barr, who I met at Manny Maloof's Tavern a couple of times, and he was a, uh, you know, a, a crazed Republican. In fact, he's still out there being a crazed Republican, but, but he was also a nice guy to have a beer with. Uh, but in any case, Bill Barr is the attorney general. He was the attorney general who, in 1992, advised George Herbert Walker Bush to cover up the Iran-Contra crimes of Reagan and Bush, and shut down the investigation by special prosecutor lawrence walsh at that time and the way he shut down those investigations was by pardoning Casper weinberger and ollie north and elliot abrams and a couple of other people whose names are kind of lost to the obscurity of time and you know i've been predicting i you know i wrote an op-ed Geez, a month or two ago, saying, you know, he did it before for the Republicans. Bill Barr is a guy who knows how to cover up crimes for Republicans. That's what he does for a living. I mean, you know, he went from that into private law practice, helping out people with their crimes. Now he's the attorney general again. And so Mueller works for him. The Department of Justice guidelines that were developed under the administrations of two different presidents who were both facing the possibility of impeachment or indictment because they had both committed crimes, the Justice Department guidelines that were developed by those attorneys general in those two White Houses, those guidelines say you can't indict a sitting president. And Bob Mueller is the kind of guy, he was, you know, a Marine. And, you know, you tell him this is the way it is. And he says, sir, yes, sir. You tell him, take that hill, and he takes that hill. You tell him, you can't climb that hill. He doesn't climb that hill. I mean, it's just that simple. And so Mueller has said that he's going to operate within the guidelines of the Justice Department, as has Bill Barr. But Bill Barr took it a step beyond that. If the Justice Department guidelines say you can't indict a sitting president, and Mueller found crimes by Trump that are worthy of indictment he nonetheless will not indict, because that's what the Justice Department guidelines say from two previous presidents who had committed crimes. So if he doesn't indict, this is where it gets real interesting. What Barr has said, what Bill Barr has said, our Attorney General, is that if there's no indictment, if somebody's not criminally charged, and he said this in general, right, so... When he said it, I think a lot of people thought, "Oh, he's talking about people like George Papadopoulos—not even—not even literally George, because he got busted. But you know, maybe Hope Hicks—you know, somebody, somebody who got involved in this thing, got caught up in it, maybe is on the edge of getting in trouble. But we decided that what they did isn't all that bad, so we're not going to indict them. And so what Bill Barr said is, if somebody isn't indicted, I'm not going to release the information on that person. It wouldn't be right, right? If Hope Hicks made some bad decisions, but they weren't actually crimes you know, why smear her name in public by talking about the part of the Mueller report that refers to Hope Hicks? And I think everybody, you know, is going, yeah, well, that makes a certain amount of sense. You know, if she's not being, you know, if if you can't prove that she committed a crime, then, you know, why should you go out and talk about what she did? Which is fine logic for everybody except Trump. But Bill Barr has said he intends to apply that logic to Trump. He said it in his confirmation hearings. So, if Donald Trump is not indicted, which he won't be, even if there's proof that he colluded with Russia, if he's not indicted, then the information about Donald Trump will not be transmitted to Congress or the American people by the Attorney General. It will be redacted, it'll be deep sixed. I think we can predict that right now, which means that Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump are going to be all over the media next week. And all the way to 2018, saying, "See, no indictment, no information, nothing to see here. This was a witch hunt. There's nothing going on because Bill Barr will have used this kind of, I wouldn't call it a technicality in the law, but I, you know, I think a, you know, a terrible failure of two previous presidential administrations, both of which had guys in the White House who could have been indicted for crimes." where the attorney general ordered the lawyers in the, in the uh, DOJ to come up with guidelines for the DOJ about whether they could prosecute a sitting president. And in both cases, they said, we don't think it's a good idea. Now, in neither case did they say it's impossible or illegal or unconstitutional. They just said it's not a good idea because the president is so busy being president that he shouldn't be distracted by a criminal trial. Wait, he's af- wait until after he's out, out of office. And then we get into all these issues about statutes of limitation. You know, most crimes have statutes of limitations associated with them. Murder is one of the few that doesn't. But most crimes do. And, you know, there's a lot of speculation that some of Trump's crimes, certainly, particularly his financial crimes, which typically have a 10-year statute of limitations, that those crimes will have run out at the end of this presidential term and certainly would run out if he's in office until 2024 as he's pushing 80 years old. So I'm telling you, get ready. Get ready for Trump and Fox to be running victory laps. Now this is, you know, you could say this is the worst case scenario. I think this is the most probable scenario, frankly. And I've been saying this for months, by the way. Go back and read my op-ed about William Barr and exactly what he intended to do. My friends at X-Chair are at it again, constantly tinkering to make an already superior product even better, so you can work in even more comfort and be that much more productive. Now you can enhance your X-Chair's performance and protect your floors with incredible X-Wheel blade casters. These urethane wheels are driven by butter-smooth, whisper-quiet ball bearings and are built to last, as if the X-Chair isn't comfortable enough. Now you can add a set of X-Wheels and take your performance to the next level. Take advantage of X-Chair's new financing option and pay as little as $30 a month. Seriously, for less than the cost of a daily cup of coffee. You can take your comfort and productivity into the stratosphere by getting yourself an X-Chair. X-Chair is on sale now for $100 off. Just go to xchairtom.com now. That's xchairthom.com or call 1-844-4X-Chair. X-Chair comes with a 30-day, no questions asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code TOM for a free footrest. That's xchairthom.com. xchairtom.com. Well, it looks like the kleptocrats are getting ready. Ivanka Trump just got a whole bunch of trademarks approved by the Chinese government. And one of them is for Ivanka Trump or just Trump branded voting machines. No, I'm not making this up. Reuters is reporting. It's in the headline. In fact, Trump brand voting machines will be manufactured in China. I wonder how many states are going to you know, pick them up and uh, or could be manufactured in China. They, they, they now have the permission to use that as a trademark. Pretty amazing stuff. On the line with us is Vicki Ward, editor-in-large at Heffington Post, author of the new book, Kushner, Inc., Greed, Ambition, Corruption. VickiWard.com, V-I-C-K-Y-W-A-R-D.com is the website. And people can tweet you at Vicky Ward. And Vicki, tell us about the book Kushner, Inc. Is this about Jared's father and him, or is this about Jared and his wife? I'm sorry, I haven't had an opportunity to read it or even see it yet.
5: It's the extraordinary story of Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump. And it's really the story of two people who are not what I think we all hope they'd be, not what they seemed. The real story, Jared and Ivanka, unfortunately, are not the moral center of this administration, which is what a lot of people hoped at the, at the outset. They're not the moderating influence. Well,
4: this is how the media characterized them. You know, they used to be Democrats. They're reasonable people. They're young. They're attractive. Right. Isn't this sweet? They'll moderate crazy old Donald. It's not yes, the case, uh, huh?
5: Right. And I think that the book shows that actually these two, you mentioned Jared's father, Charlie, mm-hmm. that these two, because of their backgrounds and because of the culture that they come from, are very entitled and very disdainful of rules, including the rule of law. They really believe that rules are for other people. And this has created all sorts of problems, actually, just on a small level in the working environment of the White House, because most people go into government for public service and they have to divest all their assets, stocks and shares, everything they have to, to avoid conflict of interest. Jared and Ivanka really haven't divested at all. It's as if rules don't matter for them. You know, this has all sorts of really serious ramifications It affects, you know, the way they've conducted themselves in domestic policy and in foreign policy. And I think the book makes the argument that it's really dangerous for this country.
4: So how did this whole myth of Javanka, of Jared and Ivanka being, you know, these wonderful, helpful people, how did this evolve? Where did this come from? Was this an intentional thing? Was this like you know they hired a PR firm to push this out into the media sphere, or it, it was this just wishful thinking on the part of all of us? Or I mean, what?
5: No, so it's really interesting. So Jared and Ivanka are very similar people, and both of them sort of consider public relations number one priority. Ivanka once said, you know, uh, perception is much more important than reality. She actually wrote that Mm -hmm. in one of her books. And, you know, both of them, for I say in the book, have been sort of programmed or programmed themselves for different reasons to sort of appear as the far more sort of sophisticated, shinier, glossier version of their respective fathers. Mm -hmm. You know, Jared's entire adult life his mission has been to avenge what happened to his father who went to jail in 2005 at the hands of chris christie yes and to rehabilitate the kushner family name and i I say in the book there was actually a really considered three-point plan that was cooked up by the public relations guru Harold rubenstein that you know the Kushner's had to sell up out of new jersey and buy a trophy building in new york that was part one part two was two by a media outlet so they could control their image. And the third was for Jared to date someone prominent.
4: I remember when this, this is like a couple of years ago, this story first broke that, that the reason Jared married Ivanka was because that was his ticket back into respectability and the reason he bought, was it the New York Observer, this newspaper?
5: Yeah, yeah, the the Observer was sort of put him in the the social orbit to meet Ivanka. But the point is that I think that these two have been programmed to focus on their image. And they are the ones that have been very busy putting out this sort of myth, this surface idea that they are the adults in the room. And I think the book really shows how they're just not what they seem. They are very, very transactional.
4: We're talking with Vicki Ward, her new book that she just referred to as Kushner Inc., Greed, Ambition, Corruption. VickiWard.com is the website. Of course, the book is available today wherever you get your books. Vicky, is all of this a little more sophisticated or friendly for the New York Times way of saying that basically Jared and Ivanka are grifters?
5: Yeah, that was it. That's how you put it. <laughs> That's an easier, that, you got it right.
4: And they both learned it from their fathers.
5: That would also be correct, but I think what's what's sort of more important is the ramifications for that once you go into government. I mean, look, mm-hmm. you know, Jared when he worked for his father in a family's real estate firm. And my last book was about the world of New York real estate. I know this subject area very well. Mm-hmm. He developed a reputation for being an imperious delegator who didn't really know the details of anything. And, you know, He was a bit of a bully and very rude to subordinates, but not to anyone important. Now, not knowing the details doesn't really matter when you're running your father's business that you're going to inherit. But it really matters when you go into the White House, and then suddenly you haven't filled out a security clearance form correctly, and suddenly, oh, look, there's a FBI investigation led by James Comey looking at Russian collusion. And, oh, look, Jared hasn't mentioned on his form that he met with senior Russian diplomat and a Kremlin-connected banker during the transition. And so, ah, Jared, Jared, and I say this in the book, is the one who pushes Trump to fire James Comey at exactly the same time that the media suddenly learns of all these very, very serious omissions on his security clearance form. And Jared, who normally sort of whispers privately in Trump's ear, on this occasion had a stand-up row in front of people and in front of the president with steve bannon and made a three-pronged argument to trump that he must fire james comey he said number one the fbi doesn't like comey number two the democrats don't like comey and three the base will love it if you fire him you mm-hmm. know there are lots of people who disagree this with is a Gary, purely yes.
4: political argument in well, for firing the head of the fbi
5: right no it, it was perceived as an effort to save himself
4: because Comey was looking into Jared Kushner, well, too. it's
5: because it's a felony not to fill out a security clearance form correctly.
4: Uh-huh. But is Jared so short-sighted that he thought that he's committed a crime, the head of the FBI is looking into this crime, get rid of the head of the FBI, and the criminal investigation is going to go away? I mean, if that was his logical thought process, that, that seems like the thought process of a pre-teenager.
5: Right, but, but these two people, yeah, Jared and Ivanka, you know, you have to think of them a bit like Inspector Clouseau. You know, everyone else can see the sort of bumbling incompetence right. around the White House, but they can't see it themselves.
4: So you're the little boy who's saying the emperor has no clothes here. I mean, Right, you know.
5: that is exactly correct. I mean, you know, the next thing he did isn't an obvious move from people of normal judgment. You know, he's busy having all these meetings with investors of companies that he hasn't actually divested from. In, some, in one case, he hadn't even disclosed it, that disclosed that he still had an investment. He's the one who pushes for the White House logs to be closed. Do you remember the, the, yeah. the spring? Yeah. I mean, that's an outrage. I mean, at, at the time... The oh, these are the visitor logs. Yeah, the visitor logs. This is logs. how we they, find out
4: who's hanging out with yeah, people in know, the White the, House. It,
5: the American public is entitled to know what's happening at the White House. Yes. They are entitled to know who's going in. And at the time, the official word was that the logs were closed for security reasons. Mm. But actually, Trump, he didn't like the backlash in the media. And he turned to Sean Spicer, who was then the press secretary, and said, who has closed the logs and why? And Reince Priebus, Steve Bannon, everyone around, they all suspected, actually, they knew it was Jared who was conducting... All this business, because his father had a serious financial problem. He had a building, this trophy building in New York, was bleeding financially, and he desperately needed foreign investment. Mm. So, of course, Jared didn't want the public knowing what was going on. But what happened was that a year later, John Kelly, a general with a general's mindset, actually opened the White House logs. So that then we were able to see that Jared had had all these meetings, Lloyd Blankfein, who is an investor in a company he still had a stake in, Apollo and Citigroup, who then subsequently made loans to his family business.
4: Vicki, tell me about the relationship between Jared Kushner and the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, and how that relationship, A, came about, B, why it's important to Jared, and C, how it's distorting American Foreign and perhaps even domestic policy.
5: So, Jared, he was then the future crown prince of Saudi Arabia, and I think he thought he saw an opportunity, you know, money. is what he, he saw. He that thought.
4: The, the Saudis or their or their other billionaire buddies in the Middle East might invest in Jared's right, right, building. Right. that was bleeding money.
5: Well, and subsidize his peace plan and also his private interest. MBS, on the other hand. I think saw Jared as a pawn. as a useful someone idiot. who could be useful, yeah, and get an, and a conduit into the White House and someone to be played. So MBS very sort of cleverly persuades Jared to persuade Trump to have the first official U S. visit is not to you know a country with shared democratic values like Britain or France, but to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, where they have this summit that's meant to be all about cooperation in the Gulf, right? And days after it's over, MBS makes a complete mockery of the whole thing and of America by announcing a blockade on a neighboring country of Qatar because he wanted its resources. Qatar is much richer. Than Saudi Arabia.
2: Hmm,
1: I
5: didn't and know that. Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, and Jim Mattis, Secretary of Defense, were absolutely horrified. They'd had no idea of this. because well, the
4: 5th or 6th Fleet or whatever is based in Qatar, isn't
5: it? Right. But what's even worse is Rex Tillerson knew that MBS would never have done this if he hadn't had a green light from Jared Kushner. Hmm. And what's noticeable is the Qataris had recently turned the Kushners down. The Kushners had gone to them for money for their building. And so you just have to follow the money. I mean, it's really simple. So Jared Kushner, still thinking that MBS is going to pay for all the things he's ambitious on, then blocks everyone, all the national, you know, everyone in the State Department, National Security Council, who should be sitting in on meetings, are all kept out while Jared has these private visits back and forth. And the next thing that happens is MBS, right after Jared's been visiting, MBS rounds up. His efforts to get money for out of Qatar haven't worked. So the next source of money, he goes to, he rounds up all these influential Saudis and imprisons them, if you remember, mm-hmm. accusing them of corruption. Rex Tillerson said to Jared Kushner, Jared, have you noticed that there are seven branches of the Saudi royal family. The only branch that MBS has not imprisoned are his own blood relatives. Don't you think it's statistically unlikely that they're not corrupt too? And Jared just didn't want to know.
4: Wow. Kushner goes over to Saudi Arabia. MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, has determined that he can play this guy. Kushner is desperately hoping he's going to get money both for his own personal efforts and to fund the Middle East peace deal from the Saudis. Immediately after he goes over, MBS arrests a whole bunch of people from six of the seven branches of the Saudi royal family, the one branch that doesn't get busted is his own family. Kushner doesn't want to hear about that. The one piece that I have heard that I'm not hearing and I'm, I'm, I'm wondering about, is it possible that the reason that MBS was able to specifically target individuals within Saudi Arabia for this shakedown and for, and apparently in one case, even beating one of these guys to death, was because yep. Jared Kushner shared secret yes. U.S. intelligence that, that with, is in, with that the is prince? in the
5: book, and that was confirmed to me by several intelligence sources, yes.
4: So we have a guy, an advisor to the president of the United States in the White House, a grifter, who shared top-secret U.S. intelligence with the leader of another country, then used that to imprison and kill his own citizens, that seems to me pretty radical. I mean, that— It's
5: extraordinarily radical. And the story has another twist. It's shocking. So then that we get to spring of 2018, MBS comes to the United States and Trump asks the president asks him for $4 billion to help rebuild Syria. And MBS, I don't have enough money because he spent so much money on this very brutal war in Yemen and oil prices were down. Jared Kushner, hearing this, starts to feel rather differently. The Qataris then come to town and say, we've got lots of money, but we need the blockade against us lifted. What happens? A company whose second biggest shareholder is the Qatari Investment Authority bails out the Kushner family building on an astonishing deal, a 99-year lease paid up front, which is unheard of, and the U.S. says it's no longer going to support the blockade on Qatar. Wow. Welcome to foreign policy dictated by the Kushner's personal financial needs.
4: This is astonishing. Vicki Ward, editor-in-large at Huffington Post. Her new book, Kushner, Inc., Greed, Ambition, Corruption. VickiWard.com. You can tweet her at VickiPJWard. Vicki, it's been a fascinating conversation. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for dropping by and for writing this book. It's absolutely brilliant. Tom Hartman here with you. Should we be showing gruesome pictures of shooting victims? There's a fascinating piece over on Politico by Jack Schaefer titled, Don't Censor the New Zealand Shooting Videos. Now, he's saying that there's an argument to be made that we should be able to see the video as the shooter shot it. I'm not not so comfortable with that. But I think showing pictures of the victims... I think if we had shown pictures of the Newtown victims, if we had shown pictures of the victims in Marjorie Stoneham Douglas School, if I remember the name right, it would sufficiently horrify people that there would be a stronger push for gun action. And in fact, people in New Zealand, I mean, they, whether they wanted to or not, they saw a lot of these pictures. New Zealand itself had to censor the Australian version of Sky News because they were showing the pictures on New Zealand TV. So people in New Zealand have seen the horrors of this, and boom, within a week, they've said, that's it, no more semi-automatic weapons in our country. That's it, they're gone. No more high-capacity magazines, period. And if you think back to Vietnam, after Walter Cronkite came back from his trip to Vietnam, and this was during the Nixon administration, and he said, you know, this is it. This is, as I recall, might have been Johnson, but I'm pretty sure it was Nixon. He said, this is it. This whole thing is a lie, right? We have lost And CBS News and some of the other stations were showing the horrors of Vietnam. We saw dying Americans being carried out on litters in stretchers. We saw the video of the little girl, that naked little girl and all her family and friends running down the street with their skin literally on fire from napalm. We saw in real time, actually, the the picture of that Vietnamese, South Vietnamese official who walked up to the, well, he's the mayor of some city or something, put a gun to his head and shot him dead. We all saw that. We saw the horrors of Vietnam and we put an end to the Vietnam War. We never saw the horrors of the Gulf War. George Herbert Walker Bush didn't want to make that mistake. We never saw those pictures of dead civilians, dead soldiers, George W. Bush tried to even suppress, initially tried to suppress the pictures of people coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq, the corpses, the coffins. Remember that? So should we be showing the pictures? Now, there are those people who say that when you show the pictures of death and destruction, you're encouraging other people to do more death and destruction. And yet there's this anomaly, and it's the Gabby Gifford shooting. The Gabby Gifford shooting, you know, let's shoot a politician, right? that did not cause any copycats whereas so many of the school shootings have what's the difference on well, the gabby giffords shooting we saw pictures of people dead in the street we saw gabby giffords we saw her recovering we saw her wounds we saw the damage it did to her it made her real it made her human and it made us sick to our stomachs it made us horrified at what this man had done so i would say that the gabby giffords shooting shows us that we actually should be showing these pictures. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody has to look at them. Doesn't mean they have to be on the front page of the newspaper. And it doesn't mean that we have to pick the most horrific ones. But these high-powered rifles these ammunition rounds, these bullets that are designed for warfare. They're designed to kill people as aggressively as possible, ideally kill a single person with a single bullet, by having the bullet explode or tumble or just do so much damage and shock inside the body, such high velocity, that one little tiny bullet takes out like literally a a, a square foot or a cubic foot of viscera body material. I mean, it took them a whole week to identify all the victims in New Zealand, in part because some of them were so badly shot up. Where are all the pieces? Should we be seeing these pictures or not? Is our news media doing us a disservice? Is our social media, you know, too careful about offending our sensibilities? and thus helping the gun industry
3: listening to the tom hartman
4: program in fact to what extent over the last 20 years has the unwillingness of the media to show us the victims of mass shootings caused there to be more mass shootings everyone's talking about the decline in stock values over the last few months if you've been listening to lynette zhang's youtube show you probably aren't surprised by the fall her fact-based research on markets currencies and economics is second to none and her presentations have pointed to most every major downfall we've recently seen in the U.S. economy. Her video titled Just Before the Crash showed people the exact patterns to look out for and now has over 210,000 views and counting. Lynette Zhang has been on my show and works with my friends at ITM Trading. I highly recommend looking them up as they are pioneers in creating wealth protection strategies with gold and silver. If you're a strategic investor looking to protect your wealth or just hedge against the most volatile markets since 2007, then call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and join the top 1% who are now accumulating very specific types, dates, and qualities of physical gold and silver. Call one eight 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 own gold That's one owngold Kenneth in Tualatin, Oregon. Hey, Kenneth, what's on your mind?
6: So you're talking about the showing pictures of combat and stuff like that. Yeah. So I'm an OIF vet. I was uh, in Iraq from about 2004 to 2005. And, you know, a lot of us soldiers, we all took pictures while we were there. There's just tons and tons of pictures. And when we got home, like, our computers got confiscated and everything else. And basically all of our information wiped out. But the thing was, is a lot of us, when we came back, we tried to get our... When we tried to go through our help to get help and stuff like that, we had nothing to verify... What we had gone through. So, a lot of us soldiers, we couldn't even get the proper help because if we're talking to a psychiatrist or if we're talking to counseling, you know, back in the States who's never been in conflict before, they don't even know where to start. They just kind of sympathize with you and just kind of talk at you. And, and right. it's
4: like. So, you're trying to say, you know, here, look at what I saw. This is what traumatized me. This Here's the scene for, as the result of this firefight that I went through. Look at the blood and carnage. Then you can understand why I'm waking up in the middle of the night you know, freaking out. Is that what you're talking oh, yeah. about? But, yeah, but the military took all your pictures away from you.
6: Yes, and well, that's part of it. But then the, the other part of it is like when we come home and we try to talk to people about it, you know, again, it comes down to, you know, it's only what we say. And, right. you know, it, it, we can't really verify. It. So you don't have a lot of soldiers that are even really talking about what's going on, except for, you know, people like Chelsea Manning, you, you know, that, the videos that Chelsea Manning put out, most of us already had. Yeah, we actually had those there, and so he—or uh, I'm sorry—she gets in trouble. She goes to jail, prison, you know, and gets tortured. Right. Then she gets goes to jail because she doesn't, you know, she's still trying to correct the system. And yet, the rest of us are sitting here. Half of us had that information on our own, and you know, we right. don't—we don't even have the opportunity. To, so, so the know,
4: net net, produce. the bottom line of what you're saying, Kenneth, is that you agree wow. that we should be showing the pictures of how uh, how gruesome war is, as many countries do. And we should be yes. showing the pictures of the mass shootings.
6: Yes, definitely. I mean, because the thing is, is, how do you empathize with something? Or how do you understand, like, what takes place in something if you don't have the context right. Right. and the information? And then there are people
4: who will say, but wait a minute, that's going to cause other people to have trauma from watching those pictures. And I'm like, well, then maybe we need to do that. Uh, you know, maybe a little trauma <laughs> is what's going to shock us out of sitting around and saying, oh, another shooting. Well, we'll all send our prayers and thoughts.
6: Thoughts and prayers. When you you get complacent with the lack of knowledge, you just kind of sit by and say, okay, you know, you're glad it wasn't me. Yeah. But, yeah, I definitely think it would be a good step for the country and most other countries as well.
4: Well, a lot of countries do
6: this. Uh, Kenneth,
4: thank you for the call. Martin in Atlanta. Hey, Martin.
6: Um, I think we see. I mean, when we want to go ahead and bomb Syria, we show pictures of kids vomiting and dying from a gas attack. But we're really not showing pictures of kids in Yemen being blown to pieces by our bombs, because we don't want to go there. We don't want the war or our support for the war in Yemen to become unpopular. So those pictures aren't shown. But yet when we want to scare uh, when we want to whip up the abortion crowd. We show pictures of, you know, dismembered fetuses. I mean, I think it's a selective thing. I think if you're going to show a gross picture for a response, show them all or don't show any of them because again, it's too convenient to show the ones to get a response you want and then ignore the other ones that have the response we should have.
4: Yeah, and when George Herbert Walker Bush was trying to gin up support for his war against Saddam Hussein, his uh, first Gulf War, the daughter of that diplomat who came in and talked about them throwing babies out of, uh, th- which was a complete lie. Uh, the news media went out and found pictures of babies in And You know, it's just incredible. Yeah, Martin, spot on. Thank You're
3: you. listening to Tom Hartman, visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives.
4: Blaine, listening to KPFK in Thousand Oaks, California. Hey, Blaine, your thoughts?
1: Well, here's the measuring stick, I think, in my opinion, for whether or not to show the result of violence at the hands of human beings. Mm-hmm. You know, the disappearance of the casualties that were shown during the Vietnam War isn't just a coincidence. I mean, those propagating war or weapons, I think they realized and putting those images out in public created a backlash. That was counterproductive to their agenda of the motives of the industries that profit from the war and all of its paraphernalia. So they knew that you know that backlash was hurting their bottom line. So hey, we got to take those images out. People are you know that's why the Vietnam War everybody came out against it because those images were shown. Yeah. Now do you have those backlash during all these wars that are going on for 16 years? No, because we never see any violence.
4: Well, we don't even see, you know, we don't even see the bodies of the American soldiers. We just, you know, we see these nice coffins with with flags draped over them. Yeah, I mean... And for a while, Bush didn't even want us to see those.
1: Exactly. So I think you have to rub people's noses in it. You know, show the videos. I'm I'm not into war porn here, violence porn, but, you know, you have to beat people over the head. You have to show them what's going on. There's decent people in this country, and they will, you know, fight against that, and there would be a backlash. That's the only way to do it, to show the images.
4: Yeah. Okay, Blaine, thanks for the call. Welcome back 10 minutes before the hour. Tom Harbin here with you. Another, let me just toss another piece into this. Back, I don't know, 20 years, maybe more than 20 years ago, Louise and I were in Bangkok, Thailand, sitting in an open air bar in one of the big marketplaces. And looked up on the TV monitor and was uh, just stunned to see that they were showing snuff films. Uh, you know, they were showing movies of people being killed. And they sure looked real. In fact, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that they probably were. Um, and it was shocking and it was, whoa, you know. And, and I thought about those for a long time, dreamed about them a few times, unpleasantly. In the African-American community in the United States, we saw, you know, I believe it was Philando Castile, whose girlfriend live streamed a police officer shooting him in the stomach and him dying, bleeding out. So there is damage done to people from seeing these kinds of images. There's trauma inflicted on them. On the other hand, as these images of black people being shot by police have been seen and or being killed by the police, uh, Eric Garner, who was suffocated by the cop in New York. And we watched this. We watched this guy die in real time. And so the question, does the trauma that that inflicts on a community motivate the community to activism? I mean, we're seeing an enormous level of activism in response to the killing and damaging of black bodies. In my opinion, as a direct response of the visibility of them and this was beyond just the African American community in the United States people seeing these images going holy crap this is unacceptable or do we have to protect people you know is it the obligation of the media and social media to say no we've got to protect people's sensibilities they should not have to look at them. and for that matter the families of the victims i mean this is the thing in in New Zealand they were saying the families of these victims do not want to see these pictures. So how do you protect them? Let's throw that in there as well. Steve, quick one, please.
6: After World War II, our government made it a priority that every man, woman, and child see the carnage that their countrymen inflicted on them. And have you seen Germany rise up since then?
4: You're right. Yeah, the Germans were forced to look at the pictures of the concentration camps. And we watched the invasion of Normandy, right? It was filmed. I mean, we saw American soldiers being cut down. But there were a lot of Germans in denial, and they had to show all those people that this wasn't staged. Yeah, yeah. Excellent point. This is turning out to be a fairly complex issue. Steve, thanks for the call. Dave in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave,
7: what's up? And not too much time, you know. Of course, this topic has been preoccupying me for the last 760 days, or however long Trump's been in office. Yeah. But the thing is, you is, mean as a um, former
4: military guy, or just in general?
7: Uh, no, as a former intel analyst for intel analyst, that's almost right. 30 I'm years. Yeah. yeah, and also, look, we're in a bad situation. All right right-wing violence, as the pattern shows, went down under George Bush, okay? Mm-hmm. Right-wing violence usually goes down under a right-wing president because they're somewhat appeased, they're somewhat happy. Right. It has continued to rise, and that's what got my interest. What we're seeing here, it's continued to rise under Donald Trump, and what we're seeing here is a classic leaderless resistance model, and that's what I kind of specialize in. And it's not good. I mean, this it does not bode well, because uh, Donald Trump, there's nothing can do to stay those two forces even if he wanted to the military has to follow orders possible computer virus from who knows where it doesn't really matter all you have to do shut down a major metropolitan area that would be a crisis you know and people would not know the military would just follow orders and they would feel that they were restoring order and ameliorating chaos okay they would not know what they're doing is that what they would be doing is facilitating a coup all right. And no matter what, it, like I said, even if Donald Trump loses the election and we get someone in there that these right wingers can use, the straw man, it doesn't really matter. It, it could be like a person of color. It could be Kamala Harris. It could be Cory Booker, whatever. I, you know, what we're going to see is like a yellow vest type movement in america but it's going to be much more violent than what's in france what's going on in france it's going to be more violent and you know war at a certain point is corporate there was a guy i wanted to call in and ask him he he did a, a thing about red hotel or something about how a hotel rwanda he mentioned panama played an important role in saving people's lives well i wanted to ask him would he do a hotel in austria where spies used to meet hmm. you know
4: yeah and it's all it's 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 all i'm sorry dave we're out of time it's all fascinating speculation and you know dave thanks a lot for the call Stealing data from unsuspecting people on public Wi-Fi is one of the simplest ways for hackers to make money. When you leave your internet connection unencrypted you might as well be writing your passwords and credit card numbers on a huge billboard for the rest of the world to see. That's why I use ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. Turning on ExpressVPN protection takes only one click Using ExpressVPN, I can safely surf even on public Wi-Fi without having my personal data stolen. For less than $7 a month, you can get the same ExpressVPN protection that I have. ExpressVPN is rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at ExpressVPN.com Tom. That's EXPRESSVPN.com slash THOM for three months free with a one year package. Visit ExpressVPN.com slash Tom to learn more. Tom in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Tom, what's on your mind? This is Paul. Sorry. Paul? Uh, yes. Hey, Paul. How are you? I was wondering why Tom in Woodenville was calling. What's up?
2: Well, Sheriff Mack really didn't answer your question uh about what will happen if Donald Trump were to not win the election. He didn't win the first time, but uh, let me point something out here. And I thought it was only here in the state of Washington, but then I heard Amy Goodman talking about it. There are law enforcement officials across the country, not just here, who are refusing to uphold laws. For yes, instance, I'm here sure in the was. state of Washington in November, we passed the citizens initiative 1639, which is wide-sweeping gun reform initiative, passed by 60 percent of the voters, an initiative. And the sheriff of uh, Republic County, Washington, says he will not uphold 1639.
4: Right. And specifically, what it's requiring is he be the guy who executes the background checks.
2: Says, First of all, it's unconstitutional. So he's going to become an appeals court justice. Right. The 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 initiative was already tested in a Seattle district court, and then it was appealed to the Seattle Supreme. Or sorry, the, they, that's what they call it, the Seattle Supreme Court, the, the Washington Supreme Court, that refused to hear
4: the case. And Tom or Paul, excuse me. There's a big difference between willfully, basically refusing to act, which is what these sheriffs are doing, and acting. You know, in other words, getting on an airplane and going to Washington, D.C. and taking your guns out of checked luggage and reassembling them and showing up surrounding the White House to protect Donald Trump. That's a a long stretch from saying, you know, I'm not going to do what I wasn't doing before simply because the law changed and says I have to do it now.
2: In 2008, when Barack Obama won the election, I had gone to North Carolina to visit a friend of mine. And was having dinner with his his, his sister and, and, his, and her husband who lived on the other just over the border in south carolina in a small town a small voting district she's a bartender in one of the two bars there and the talk around town was that there are two n-word lovers who voted for that monkey i wonder who they are wow. and that's what she had to listen to in her bartending job who are the two n-word lovers two yeah. votes for obama in this precinct
4: i opened my new book hidden history of guns and the second amendment with the story of being in mason michigan at a gun range with two of my brothers and a couple of our kids uh, on christmas weekend 2008 when obama won the election and you know, we went in to rent some guns too. Uh, Steve brought his own gun with him, but all, none of the rest of us own guns. And they were perfectly willing to rent me the guns, and I tried to buy two boxes or three boxes of ammo, and they would, he would only sell me either one or two. I don't remember which it was. I'm pretty sure it was two. And, and, the, and the shelves were like three quarters empty. And I'd never, and I've been in that shooting range a lot of times over the last 30, 40 years, and I've never seen them, you know, anything other than stock like a Walmart. And and I'm like, you know, why can't I buy more ammunition? And he's, you know, we're going to be here a couple hours. And he's like, um, because of that N word in the White House. He goes off on this rant, and uh, you know, he just goes off on this rant. And in my book, I wrote it using that word, or you know, with asterisks and things. And, but no, that was so the same no, thing. A, I mean,
2: a, I have to say, just to wrap it up here, when you're talking with other callers about shooting, I always think, what is the fascination with this? It's like shooting nails out of a nail. I don't get it. I just don't get it. I fired a gun a few times in my life.
4: Never wanted to do it again. I think a lot of us grew up thinking that it would be really fun to be based on the on the television and movies that we saw. That it would really be fun to be the good guy with a gun. And I think that that's just like cooked into a lot of men. And I, I will like being the good piano at a party. It's yeah, way, okay. way more interesting. You know, I get it, Paul. Thanks a lot for the call. It's good to hear from you, Marcus in Victorville, California. Hey, Marcus, what's on your mind?
6: Uh, hey, Tom. It's uh, good to be on the show. You, uh, you're you a fighter for the free speech and, you know, the good fight out there. So uh, I just wanted to pick your brain a little bit about the New Zealand event that happened, but not so much, you know, what everyone else is discussing, but what's going to happen as a result of it? Who right. would benefit the most, you know, from
4: the further divide, essentially? well what i don't know and i'm guessing is going to shake out in the in the in the press coverage over the next couple of days but what i don't know and i didn't and i wasn't able to easily research this morning is whether when australia there, there was a massacre at port arthur in tasmania uh, which is part of australia essentially in uh, 1996 as i recall maybe 1997 the port arthur massacre and the australian papers published photographs of the shooting victims. I think he killed 37 or 38 people. And it's so horrified, the Australians... That they changed their gun laws and they made it basically you know a whole lot harder to just be a casual gun owner you've got to either be a serious gun owner or not at all you've got to make a commitment to it you've got to get a license you know where your gun is you you know there's levels of responsibility that didn't exist before they just basically in my opinion came up with common sense gun laws and then they also did a gun buyback program that bought back what uh, if you were to apply it to the United States would be you know tens of millions of guns it was it was I think six hundred thousand or seven hundred thousand guns in Australia and I don't know if they did that in New Zealand or not. I don't know if this is going to call for, you know, because this guy was using a military-style assault rifle and uh, which one he was using. You know, I've heard reports that it was, uh, you know, an uh, uh, an AK-47. I've heard reports that it was uh, an AR-15. I've heard the military version. Uh, What is that? I, uh, I forget my military weapons, but whether this will lead to a call for gun control in Australia or not or in New Zealand rather or not I don't know but that's an interesting question that I would put out to any of our people who are familiar with the the, the laws there but is that where
6: you yeah. were going Marcus uh yeah I just uh, just kind of wanted to hear your take on it uh yeah. I unfortunately uh, very unfortunately did see the video and um I just have to say he he had training this man was trained yeah so, yeah, uh, well, these days you can get that training from
4: video games. You know, a lot of these video games were originally developed by the military to train soldiers in how to kill people. I believe it. I believe it. No, I'm I, you know, this, is, this is not a matter of belief. You can look it up it's like that's where that's where a lot of them started and uh you know so you know he may have had military training or he may have just been a serious gamer who who was playing those kinds of games and had just learned how to kill people that way we don't you know again i don't know right off the top of my head marcus thank you for the call and thanks for watching us on youtube helen in uh, new zealand you're actually calling from new zealand helen
0: yes i am tom i'm a regular
4: watcher of your show well thank you You, uh, how do you watch us
0: um, we, I watch you on the internet. We watch a lot of American politics because there's a lot of stuff happening here, but I felt compelled to contact you today because this country is absolutely devastated. We are absolutely grief-struck for our Muslim brothers and sisters. I can't tell you how hard this is on the country. Yeah. It's absolutely devastating. I wanted to clear just a couple of things you were talking about mm-hmm. in terms of our gun laws. Right. Um, they're very strict here. We haven't had a buyback situation because we haven't had a massacre. Our policemen don't even carry guns. And I'm watching on television, cops with guns standing around. For us, this is just overwhelming. Um, and also, our anti-immigration um, rhetoric is very low at the moment. We've got a lovely Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, talks about kindness and inclusiveness, and it's our lowest anti-immigrant feelings right now in the country. So this is truly, really overwhelming. Uh, the shooter was actually Australian. I mean, it's, you know, you know, I don't know the whole thing, but we are a small country. We're very multicultural. I live in Auckland and I live in a gated community, just a small, you know, a low income. I live with Koreans, Chinese, Indians. I'm literally, it's very multicultural here and we are, we are such a small country and we're watching, I've been watching the news in America and the Trump Stuff and watching ourselves now on television. This is most I have to say, we are weeping. We are really weeping. We are a small, kind country. I can't tell you, Tom, how hard this is.
4: Helen, do you think that this is going to pull people together in New Zealand, or it's going to tear them apart? <laughs>
0: Oh no, no, pull together, we are not we're not, in, we're not in a factional situation at the moment, our government we have a left wing, a uh, left wing government your socialism, it cracks me up your socialism stuff, because it's just our standard social welfare, you know, free medical care, that aside, sure. so we're not polarised we are so pulling together um, truly, and our Muslim, we are not anti-Muslim there's hardly been a Muslim attack in recent memory, this country, we are freely, we're only a small country, we are very small, I can't tell you that we're on the international stage, it's shameful saying i'm sorry i don't mean to cry but this is big for, really big for us we don't have shootings we don't have shootings and we watch your country and from the nightmare that you're going through and we just go oh my god i actually thought we were safe i truly believe we were safe yeah.
4: i well, really do helen helen the fact that this not. the helen and the fact that this shooter was an australian and not a new zealander does that is is that well, it's of not consequence that
0: big of the deal it's a sort of an irony
4: yeah but that's but that that would be sort of like uh uh in the united states uh you know if we got shot up by a canadian we wouldn't sit around and go oh that's canada you know that
0: i'm um, well it no, well, to be honest to be honest australian have a, a very much more right-wing immigration they've got that terrible business of the people in Nauru, right we and they're doing very nasty immigration yeah they've got an yeah, island numbers. where
4: they're you know kind I don't of know a if you've Pima caught
0: colony. up with a beautiful Prime Minister. She went to the UN and talked about kindness. She talked about kindness. And this, I'm sorry, I feel like this Trump shit is just going everywhere. It truly is going everywhere. And I don't mean it like that. I honestly thought we were safe here. I don't mean to cry this much. This is, we are all crying like this. We're a small country of truly, we don't even have guns. I don't even know what guns are. It's just horrific. She executed these Muslim people. I can't tell you how bad it is here. It really is. We are in shock. I don't mean to be over emotional, but we don't live in a world of guns, this is just not us. And we're on the international stage. I'm sorry, Tom. No,
4: it's all. It's really, all. a crush. A it's, crush. It's, it's, 49
0: it's, people, our, our murder rate last year was 48 people were murdered. And we had, I mean, that's our normal average year for the year. And we lost 49 people. Sorry, children. I'm sorry, Tom, it really is. And so I'm glad you, you've got through to you. I just want to clear a couple of the facts about our gun laws and that we don't have guns around. I mean, we have a lot of hunting ones, but strict rules about them. You never see a gun. I've never seen a gun, even a cop. Hmm.
4: Amazing! Never even seen a gun in a car. Helen, Helen, thank you so much for for calling in and sharing your perspective. Thank you so much, Helen.
0: Can you thank your your lovely staff for putting me through on this call because I couldn't contact you, and I just really wanted to communicate. And please do what you're doing, and please believe that there's people all around the world that are behind you, what you're doing in the country. You must. The Democrats must do well, and I have to laugh the socialism lag. it's a standard for us. It's a so-called social welfare. I just laugh at the telly.
4: Yeah.
0: I have been to the doctor. I don't pay for a penny. I've had hundreds of thousands of operations and nothing. I <laughs> yeah. need to pay to penny. No, I, I get it. I get
4: effort. it. I do laugh. Helen, I got to run. But thank you so much for the call, and thank you for sharing that insight with us. I appreciate it. It's great to hear from you. Brad in Prattville, Alabama.
3: Hey, Brad, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. How's it going? Great. What's up? hey um i'm not sure i hadn't listened to the show in a while because I, I didn't have access to it but there was a case in birmingham a few months back where there was a mall shooting and there happened to be a black guy there that was a legal gun owner that held the man at at gunpoint till the police arrived when the police got there they shot him and killed him they uh, shot them, the, 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 who, the the black guy who
4: the black guy was protecting people from the actual shooter
3: Yes, and he had had been there. I believe he was an Army veteran, and he had hollered, everybody get down, held the guy at gunpoint, and when the cops got there, they shot him. Uh, And I know, you know, there was this, uh, Philando Castile, I believe, was a legal gun owner, told the police, I'm reaching for my pistol permit, I do have a pistol, I'm reaching for the permit, which is not something you would usually say if you're planning on.
4: You right, know, and this is, also, this is also the case of this guy down in Florida. And, and to the best of my knowledge, Brad, in all three of these cases of African-Americans who were legal gun owners, um, legal carry permit holders, the thing that the NRA seems to promote so aggressively,
3: uh, I haven't heard a peep out of them about any of them. Have you? Well, that was my question to you. I haven't. You know, we hear a lot about the good guy with guns, and I have no problem with good guys with guns, um, except for the fact that when they're black, they typically get shot. Yeah. And you don't hear anything from the NRA. They were quick to stick up for David Koresh, Randy Weaver. You know, they're, well, they have a right to own those firearms, but you never hear a word out of them when it's a black man with a gun. Yeah. It's a legal
4: which, which, Which tells you everything you need to know. I mean, you know, it's just. Yeah.
3: And I'm sorry. Go ahead.
4: No, I was, you know, I think I said what I had to say.
3: Well, and my other question is, at what point did the NRA really turn? Because I'm 35 and I remember being a kid, you know, in the late 80s, the NRA offered safety courses. They were pro-common-sense gun control. And then it seems like some point in, I don't know, maybe the 90s or early 2000s is when they really got bought out. What was the cause of that?
4: I've got a book coming out about this. Uh, It's called The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment. In one of the chapters, it lays out exactly what happened and when it happened. I wrote the book about a little more than a half a year ago, so I'm running from memory here. I might be a little bit off. But I'm pretty sure it was 1976 or 77. You know, and up to that point, the NRA had been openly in favor of gun control legislation, rational gun control legislation, you know, gun safety, and they were principally a membership group that promoted hunting and target shooting and the safe use of, of guns, right? Uh, up till that point. Oh, yeah. And this takeover was basically by people who were shills for the weapons manufacturing industry, along with an alliance of hard right-wing Republican and white supremacist associated people. And they basically took over the NRA somewhere in the 70s and it started getting extremely radicalized during the Clinton administration. That was the first time when Bill Clinton was elected president in 92. That was when the NRA started the real scare tactics of helping to promote the sale of more and more weapons by saying, you've got a Democrat in the White House. He's going to take away your guns. And then it went on steroids in 2008 when Barack Obama was elected president to the point that, and I tell this story. In fact, I open the book with this story. Um, I, I get back to Michigan, you know, every couple years for christmas or thanksgiving something like this and this was this was christmas we were back Uh, louise and i were in michigan visiting our family and one of my brothers has a couple of guns and he's got a gun range in his backyard a shooting range in his backyard he doesn't he doesn't hunt in fact he's mostly a vegetarian um but uh he and his wife both are concealed carry permit holders and, and they've got these guns and 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 when we go visit we go out in their backyard and, and they live way out in the middle of nowhere you know and we go out in their backyard and do target practice or you know shooting yeah. and and he my, my brother steve who has the guns and and um myself and another one of my brothers and and his son and and one of my kids maybe two of my kids um we all went to this gun range in mason michigan it's one of the biggest ones around lansing um to uh to do some target practice and this was this was the the christmas of 2008 right so this was two weeks after the election or a couple weeks after the election three weeks maybe and barack obama had just been elected president and we, we walk into the gun store and there's no ammunition on the shelves, or there, you know, they're, they're, I mean, this is a huge gun store, like over a thousand guns, right? And it's like a small warehouse, and, and and they've got this huge shooting range, a very well done one, in the back, and the shelves that are normally just chock full of ammunition were just like, you know, eighty percent empty, and so I said, you know, I the guy said, what do you want? And and um, you know, I was renting a forty caliber uh, a semi-automatic pistol, and and I said, you know, I'll take, uh, you know. Two boxes of 40 caliber uh uh rounds you know ammunition and he said no you can have you can have one as i recall or maybe i asked for three and he said you could have two but whatever it was he said you can't have that much and i was like why and he and he starts yelling at me. he says it's because of that and he uses the word he says because of that n-word in the white house or who's going to be in the white house and i said what are you talking about and, and he said, right, you can't hear me? And he, and he repeats it, you know. And, and I'm like, I, I still don't know what you're talking about. I've never heard that, you know, Obama wants to take away our guns or our ammunition. And he says, I'll show you. And he pulls a uh, a, a uh, smartphone out of his back pocket and scrolls through his email and he shows me this this uh, viral email that had like, you know, 100 people on the to list about how Obama had this secret legislation and it was called H.R. 3096 and it would ban private ownership of guns and it would shut down gun ra- you know, and just the whole thing. Right. And it was all B. And I read it. I'm standing there, you know, trying trying to buy some bullets from this guy, and 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 I read his email, and I said, "This is all B.S. This is, you know, there is no such thing." And he says, "Oh no, I know this is true." And I said, "How do you know it's true?" And he says, "I heard about it on the radio. I've seen it on Fox News. We know what this guy is up to." and and uh so at that point i just stopped you know and i just i took my one or two boxes whatever it was and and as did my brothers and 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 our kids and we went down to the shooting range and and uh you know had our uh christmas hangout together you know um but uh that that was such a weird experience but it it gave me this really hardcore insight into what's going on in the foxosphere essentially
3: i'm from alabama so i know exactly what the foxosphere looks like how do we break that myth though that democrats are out to get your guns or progressives? i'm a gun owner i'm you know i've got a shotgun and a rifle um that i keep at home and you know i have no problem with people that are sane that are not violent uh you know common sense i'm Exactly, I'm I'm with you. I, you know,
4: I have no problem with sane people owning guns either. I mean, it's it, I, it, the the fact that America is five percent of the world's population and has fifty percent of the guns in civilian hands is a little concerning. But then you look, yeah. you dig into those statistics, and what you find is that the vast majority of those guns, something like seventy, eighty percent of them, are owned by about three or four percent of gun owners, by a very small number of people who are just like obsessively creating these huge gun collections. Um, you know, which is a little spooky. Um, a lot of fear. Uh, yeah, a, lot of, a fear. lot of fear. but but the fact of the matter is that the NRA and the weapons manufacturing industry have, uh, ever since the '90s, in a big way. I mean, they were doing it back in the in the '80s, uh, but Reagan was president, so they weren't screaming too loud. But uh, you know, they really they really kicked it off in '92. This this campaign to scare the crap out of gun owners and convince them that the Democrats are out to get them. And then the and then of course the Republicans picked up that mantra and they've used it as political ammunition ever since. Brad, I don't I don't know how to punch through that other than keep talking about, you know, common sense gun regulation. We already have gun regulation in this country. Even the most ardent libertarian guns forever guy is not going to say that you should be able to buy a shoulder fired surface to air missile, uh, you know, which arguably is a form of a gun, or you you should not be able to buy a 50 caliber machine gun mounted on the back of a a pickup truck with, with a belt with 300 rounds in it. These are clearly weapons of war. I mean, the argument really isn't guns or no guns. The argument really is where do you draw the line? And I love that argument. I'm, I'm all in favor of engaging in that argument as, you know, as a rational argument. Occasionally I do with, with you know, people from pro-gun groups on this program. But I think that that's all we can do. Brad, I gotta move along. We, we spent a lot of time on thanks. this. Thanks, thanks for the call, and thanks for listening to SiriusXM. But obviously, we've got some serious issues. We've got this white supremacist mass murderer in New Zealand, follower of Anders Brevik, the, the mass murderer in uh, Norway. Uh, white supremacist, mass murderer, obviously this hardcore right-wing white supremacist. And this guy was also a a political right-winger, apparently uh, praised Donald Trump. I mean, this is is crazy what happened in, in Christchurch. It's just an absolutely terrible situation. The meaning of this, I mean, that this is happening, that this is spreading worldwide, so rapidly and along with authoritarianism this is really very concerning and that we have a president and a republican party who are largely supportive of the kind of rhetoric that sets these kinds of people on these paths it's just it's just mind-boggling just mind-boggling
3: you've been listening to tom hartman for audio and video archives visit tomhartman.com